Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Hi, my name is Anna Park. I'm an attorney in Littler's Los Angeles office. I advise clients on workplace privacy and data security issues, including compliance with California's Consumer Privacy Act and the newly passed California Privacy Rights Act. And hi, my name is Julie Stockton, and I'm an attorney in Littler's San Francisco office. I partner with my clients to comply with California law, including privacy and wage and hour issues, as well as defending employers against claims brought by individuals, class and collective actions in state and federal courts. And so today we're going to discuss the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, which remains in effect despite the recent passage of Proposition 24 in California. We will also review the details of Prop 24 otherwise known as the California Privacy Rights Act, the CPRA, and how it will change the legal landscape for employers in California. So Anna, to get started, let's review how the CCPA came to be and what it requires. The California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, passed into law in June 2018 and became effective as of January 1, 2020. The law's purpose is to provide California consumers greater protection and control over their personal information. Under the law, consumers is defined according to the California Revenue and Taxation Code to mean a resident of California. Among other things, businesses will be required to provide notice to consumers about the categories of personal information the company collects from the consumers and the purposes for use of that information. In addition, California consumers will have the right to request access to or delete their personal information, the right to opt out of the sale of personal information, and to not be discriminated against for exercising these rights, as well as additional protections regarding personal information collected from minors. The law also has provisions concerning the sale of personal information, requirements for service providers, and data security. Compliance is required by all businesses that are for-profit, doing business in the state of California, collecting personal information from California residents, and satisfying one of the following three thresholds. One, annual gross revenue over $25 million, a business that buys, receives for commercial purpose, sells, or shares for commercial purpose the personal information of 50,000 or more consumers, households, or devices and derives at least 50% of its annual revenues from selling consumers' personal information. One of the three thresholds is what you need to meet in order to have the CCPA be applicable to you. In addition, the CCPA also applies to entities with control over a company that meet these requirements if the entity owns more than 50% of the company and shares common branding. Now, one thing to keep in mind are nonprofits. Sometimes nonprofits are controlled by for-profit companies, in which case you may have to do just common brand and sharing analysis. And what's interesting is that as initially passed, HR data was not expressly exempted for these companies that are subject to the CCPA, as you just outlined. Um, And then in October 2019, Governor Newsom signed AB 25 into law, which expressly carved out HR data from receiving the same treatment as consumer data. 
So employers that would otherwise be required to comply with the CCPA benefited from this carve-out, which exempted them from providing CCPA rights to their different employees and other members of their workforce based on the business's collection of their HR data, so their personal information. And so when an employer is thinking about who belongs in their workforce, that's including job applicants, employees, owners, directors, officers, contractors, and other staff members. This carve-out for HR data was initially set to last until January 1st, 2021, so only a few months away. But more recently, on September 29th, 2020, the governor of California signed AB 1281 into law, which extended this carve-out to January 1st, 2022. Also this fall, there were other amendments that were signed into law in September, which provide for additional methods for requesting information under the CCPA and specifics that govern the re-identification of de-identified data. And these were um, passed through AB 713. Now, the HR carve-out specifically requires that companies provide notice to its HR population, which includes, as Julie just mentioned, job applicants, employees, independent contractors, owners, board members, uh, medical staff, and the emergency contacts and the benefit recipients of these individuals. Now, the notice that collection that has to be provided to these individuals must contain the categories of personal information that is collected and the purposes for use of each of these categories of personal information. Now, the types of personal information that is listed in the CCPA are identifiers, which include your name, email address, contact information, uh, personal information identified under a California Civil Code, section 1798.80E, such as financial information, bank account information, uh, medical information, things like that. Information about a person's membership in a protected class, race, disability, commercial information, biometric information, internet history, which includes browsing history, geolocation data, sensory data, which includes audio, electronic, visual, including video surveillance. For example, if a business has a surveillance camera on site, the data collected through the surveillance camera will need to be disclosed as a category of sensory data that the company collects. Finally, the last two categories of personal information that requires disclosure are non-public education information and inference or profile data. And so in addition to the requirements that Anna just described that are set forth in the CCPA, final regulations for implementing the CCPA were adopted on August 14th, 2020. And some key aspects of these final regulations are, first, a business that does not collect personal information directly from a consumer need not provide the notice at collection. Um, and second, explicit consent is no longer required for using personal information for a new purpose. That explicit consent requirement had been previously set forth in draft regulations, but then it was exempted from the final regulations. So taking into account the final regulations, as well as the language set forth in the CCPA, employers are required to provide their workforce members a clear and comprehensive notice that is provided, as Anna was saying, at the point of collection of their HR data. 
So this means that the style of the notice needs to be in plain language, straightforward, and readable. The notice needs to avoid technical or legal jargon. And the format needs to draw the employee's attention to the notice. The language of the notice should also be the same type of language that is used in the ordinary course of business to provide similar documents. The notice must be accessible to the disabled or provide information on how the disabled may access the notice in an alternative format. So this sounds relatively easy, but Anna, I think you probably have some great insight into the challenges or other aspects of these notices that you could add. Yeah, absolutely, Julie. I think a challenge to these notices of collection is how to provide them so they comply with the at or before the point of collection of information requirement. Businesses should determine how they collect information from their workforce. For example, how does the client collect information from job applicants? Is it through their online careers portal or is it through a third-party job site? For employees, are they current employees or new hires? Including the notices as part of an onboarding process may work for new hires, but maybe not for current employees. How about contractors? We do recommend having a separate notice of collection for these various HR categories. For example, California businesses may want to provide separate notices that go to employees from those that go to independent contractors in light of AB5. Another reason for providing different notices of collection is that the categories of personal information businesses collect may be different for each HR category. For example, the information that a business collects from its job applicants is going to be different than what is collected from employees or board members. Businesses will want to make sure the notices accurately reflect the types of personal information collected for each HR category and is not misleading. Finally, the point of these notices is that they be readily accessible and visible to your HR population. So employers can provide the notice in the form of a paper sign, a large paper sign posted where employees can readily view them if that is the most effective way to provide the notice at or before the point of collection. So the AG started enforcing the CCPA on July 1st, 2020 by sending out enforcement letters. The AG stated that they are initially focused on low-hanging fruit by reviewing externally facing notices for consumers that are posted on companies' websites, as well as responding to consumer complaints, including consumers' complaints that have been posted on social media. And a violation of the CCPA is subject to penalties that are $2,500 to $7,500 per intentional violation. Um, there is a 30-day cure period, and so, as I just stated, the AG has started the enforcement by sending out enforcement letters. When a company receives enforcement letter, then they have a 30-day period to cure. However, that 30-day cure period, while that might sound like a lot of time, a lot of the effort of understanding the different types of data that are being collected, as well as providing compliant notices, can take longer than 30 days. And so it's recommended not to wait until you receive a notice to be, then begin to try to comply with the CCPA. Okay, so now that we've talked about these different nuances with the CCPA, which remains in effect, Anna, let's have you uh, walk us through Proposition 24 and the CPRA. 
All right. So not to make life too much more complicated for employers and businesses, California's Proposition 24, known as the California Privacy Rights Act of 2020, the CPRA, received enough votes to become law last Tuesday, November 3rd. The CPRA was a ballot initiative aimed at bolstering the CCPA, which many critics have said that, you know, with all the different amendments, the rights have really been whittled down. So the CPRA was passed. It goes into effect on January 1, 2023. But as we will discuss in a few minutes, you will know that that is not enough time, actually, for businesses to start complying with the CPRA. Now, one thing you have to keep in mind, the CCPA has not gone away. Businesses must still comply with the CCPA. It is still in full effect. Uh, nothing has changed. And when the CPRA becomes effective, then parts of the CCPA will be overridden by the CPRA. So let's look at the effect on employment data that the CPRA brings. The CPRA requires two types of notice. The first is, as we discussed at length, the notice at collection described above. But this notice is expanded now to also require disclosure of how the employer shares personal information, handles sensitive personal information, and retains personal information. Second is the privacy policy that the covered business must post on its website. The privacy policy must also cover information about how the business handles personal information, as well as California residents' rights under the CPRA, which have, of course, been expanded. Some other notable provisions and amendments to the CCPA and additions in the CPRA uh, that are, may not be employment related, but that businesses may want to pay attention to. So the CPRA adds new terms in its definition sections, adds new privacy concepts that mirror the European General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, and amends the CCPA in ways that strengthen existing consumer rights. The CPRA modifies the CCPA's applicability by amending the definition of a business by redefining one of the three thresholds. If you recall, to be subject to the CCPA, a business must meet one of the three thresholds, have a gross annual revenue greater than 25 million, collect the personal information of 50,000 or more California consumers, households, or devices, or derive 50% or more of its annual revenue from the selling of consumers' personal information. The CPRA modifies this second threshold, under the CPRA, a business now has to collect the personal information of 100,000 or more consumers or households in order to be subject to the CPRA. The threshold number doubled to 100,000 from 50,000 and now excludes devices. Perhaps the reason for this modification is to exclude small businesses. The definition now also includes joint ventures and partnerships composed of businesses where each business has at least 40% interest and adds the concept of sharing of consumer information to include businesses that derive 50% or more of its annual revenues from not just selling of personal information, but also from the sharing of personal information. What that sharing will actually look like, we'll have to wait and see, but it is a new concept that is added also expands the consumer's rights, including it adds the right to correct personal information, 
adds the right to limit the use and disclosure of sensitive personal information, the right to opt out of sharing of personal information for certain types of behavioral advertising. And it also includes a 12-month look-back period, which you'll see is an important concept again, because although the law goes into effect in January of 2023, the enforcement will be based on a 12-month look-back, so starting January 1, 2022, and consumers can also request information going back 12 months, again, starting from January 1, 2022. So although the January 1, 2023 date seems far away, that's just been carved down to actually 2022. Now, businesses may be asking, again, January 1, 2023 seems so far away, why should I have to worry now? You know, I can certainly wait until six months before 2023 and start compliance then. Well, I think that may not be the recommended course of action for the for compliance with the CPRA because it is a very involved piece of legislature. So the following six are some of the reasons why businesses should start worrying now and acting to comply now. First, businesses should do an inventory of HR data now. As I just mentioned, the CPRA contains a 12-month look-back period for consumer requests. This means starting on January 1, 2022, employers need to tag and arrange their HR data so that they can respond to employee requests, correct, delete, and obtain details on the handling of their PI once the CPRA goes into effect on January 1, 2023. Now, you ask, oh, but I thought HR data was exempt. HR data is exempt until January 1, 2023. When that time comes, employees will have full CPRA rights. So that means employees will be able to ask for or have access to their personnel file, right? Including any evaluations or negative reportings. Therefore, businesses should determine now what data can be deleted or should be deleted or what types of data would be subject to federal exemption under the CPRA so that they don't have to be deleted or be disclosed to the employee. Uh, what data should be marked for retention or non-disclosure? Again, in the event the employee exercises his or her right to delete information in their personnel file. Again, depending on the size of the company, this could be a time-consuming undertaking. So doing it within a few months may not be the right approach. A second are contractors and service provider contracts. The CPRA requires covered businesses to sign CPRA-compliant contracts with vendors that handle the business's personal information. You may need to start early to identify all vendors and begin negotiating to add in the new CPRA language. Waiting until 2020 may not give you enough time to identify and negotiate the terms. Uh, in particular, you should identify early on those contracts that may be expiring or being renewed or new vendors that you will be bringing on so that you are not in a position of having to renegotiate an amendment to those contracts when you could have done it when they were being brought on. Three, the threshold changed from the personal information of 50,000 consumers or households to 100,000 under the CPRA. So for those employers who may be holding on to archived HR data, now may be a good time for you to do some cleanup and delete old and unnecessary data. This will be helpful to try to bring you under the 100,000 requirement 
under the CPRA um, so that the CPRA compliance is not applicable to you. Also, as Julie will discuss later, deleting old HR data may be good practice as part of the business's data security document retention and deletion policy. The CPRA also creates the California Privacy Protection Agency to enforce the CPRA. Unlike the Attorney General, whose time may be split with other issues going on in the state, this agency's sole focus will be to enforce the CPRA. The agency will have the time, authority, and the financial incentive to enforce the CPRA. As we previously mentioned, Currently, under the CCPA, businesses have a 30-day cure period that starts when the Attorney General notifies the business of the violation. However, this 30-day cure period has been removed under the CPRA. Now, whether a business gets any cure period will depend on the enforcement agency. Under the Act, the agency can, by its own initiative or on the sworn complaint of any person, investigate possible CPRA violations. Of course, the agency can choose not to investigate or decide to provide the business with time to cure the alleged violation. But in coming to this decision, the agency will consider a lack of intent to violate and any good faith effort put in to cure the violations before being notified by the agency. And the agency can also hold a proceeding to determine whether probable cause exists to support a violation. What all of this translates to for businesses is cost. Therefore, businesses will want to make sure they are in full compliance before enforcement begins. It may not be the best use of resources and time to undergo these investigations, so it is certainly beneficial to start early. Finally, many businesses may be thinking, okay, Surely there will be a carve-out for HR data, much like the CCPA carve-out. However, an amendment or an extension for HR data is unlikely. That's because the CPRA was a ballot initiative. It may only be amended by a majority vote of the members of each house, signed by the governor, and amended only to the extent that such amendment is consistent with and will further the purpose and intent of the act. That means, the CPRA's purpose and intent is to further protect consumers' privacy rights. Therefore, any amendment that seeks an employee data carve-out may be viewed as a limitation on the consumer's privacy rights and will likely be challenged. Now, Julie, do you want to talk about data security incidents and the issues related to data security? Yes, I do. Thanks, Anna. That was a great detailed overview of the CPRA. And as you had talked about while you were uh, discussing deletion of old data, the risks for data security. As a litigator, I see this data security issue as a potential boon for plaintiff's attorneys to bring class actions. So it's really important that all employers are aware of this and it's on their radar. So the CCPA created a private right of action for data security breaches. This provision is set forth in section 1798.150 of the Civil Code, and it's distinct from the rest of the CCPA obligations. So as a result, it applies to any employer, not just those that are otherwise obligated to comply with the CCPA. Further, it's enforceable by private individuals. It's not limited to actions by the Attorney General. 
So under this provision of the CCPA, individuals now can recover the greater of their actual damages or $100 to $750 of statutory damages for a business's failure to, quote, implement and maintain reasonable security procedures and practices appropriate to the nature of the information to protect the personal information, end quote. It's important to note that the CCPA is not unique by requiring reasonable security practices with regard to protecting personal information. This, in fact, is a legal requirement that's on the books in all 50 states under the data security laws. So here, for purposes of data security obligations, personal information is defined by Civil Code Section 1798.81.5. And this code defines personal information to mean either an individual's first name or first initial and the individual's last name in combination with any one or more of the following data elements when either the name or the data element is not encrypted or redacted. So this would be an individual's first name or first initial and their last name in combination with their social security number or driver's license number or other unique government issued identification number such as passport number or an account number or credit or debit card number in combination with any required security code, access code or password that will permit access to the individual's financial account. Again, um, in addition, it would be an individual's first name or first initial and their last name in combination with medical information, health insurance information, or the individual's unique biometric data. The CPRA also adds email address in combination with a password or security question to access that email address as protectable personal information. So statutory damages are available to be recovered by an individual if a business fails to cure after 30 days of written notice under the statute. But note that the CPRA amends this portion of the statute to clarify that the implementation and maintenance of reasonable security procedures and practices following a breach would not constitute a cure with respect to that breach. So security breaches are often caused by employee behavior. It's not simply as you may imagine it, how it's projected in the movies or on TV, where it's, you know, someone sneaking in and hacking onto um, an employee's computers in the middle of the night. It's actually quite often security breaches are caused by um, employee behavior and human error among the workforce members. And security breaches are especially on the rise right now as more and more employees are working from home due to the pandemic. And plaintiff's attorneys have started filing lawsuits under this provision of the CCPA against companies for employee-caused data security breaches. So what does reasonable data security practices mean? California doesn't have a specific definition for what's required. So a good place to turn for guidance is the New York Shield Act, which can provide a blueprint for what constitutes reasonable security standards. The Shield Act stands for Stop Hacks and Improve Electronic Data Security Act. The SHIELD Act went into effect on March 21st, 2020. But since that was at the height of the pandemic in New York, it didn't get a lot of publicity and many businesses are not aware of the new requirements under the law. The SHIELD Act amended New York's data security breach law. 
And most relevant to our discussion, it now requires any person or business owning or licensing computerized data that includes the private information of a resident of New York to implement and maintain reasonable safeguards to protect the security, confidentiality, and integrity of the private information. While the SHIELD Act does not mandate specific safeguards, it does provide several examples of practices that are considered reasonable administrative, technical, and physical safeguards. These examples suggest the kinds of safeguards businesses should be adopting. But again, these are not the only safeguards that companies should be considering and implementing in their practices. Examples of administrative safeguards are designating individuals responsible for security programs, conducting risk assessment process that identifies reasonably foreseeable internal and external risks and assesses the sufficiency of safeguards in place to control those risks. Also training and managing employees in security program practices and procedures. Selecting capable service providers and requiring safeguards by contract. And adjusting programs in light of business changes or new circumstances. Physical safeguards that have been suggested as set forth in the New York Shield Act are that companies should assess the risks of information storage and disposal, and that goes back to Anna's point of not holding on and getting rid of old data, detecting, preventing, and responding to intrusions, protecting against unauthorized access or unauthorized use of private information during or after collection, transportation, and the destruction and disposal of information and disposing of private information within a reasonable amount of time after it's no longer needed for business purposes. Then the technical safeguards, some ideas are the assessing risks in network and software design, assessing risks in information processing, transmission, and storage, detecting, preventing, and responding to attacks or system failures, and regularly testing and monitoring the effectiveness of key control systems and procedures. So as illustrated by these examples that are set forth in New York Shield Act, it's no longer sufficient to have a data security policy sitting on the shelf. Businesses are expected to be proactively monitoring and implementing data security practices to safeguard personal information. So we recommend reviewing data security protocols annually and doing a risk assessment in order to show that the company's security efforts are reasonable. Well, thank you for joining us today while Anna and I went through all of the different nuances presented by the CCPA as well as the newly passed Proposition 24 and the CPRA. We hope that you enjoyed the discussion. If you have any questions about the topics that we covered today, please reach out to either one of us. Uh, Anna's email is apark@littler.com, and her phone number is 310-772-7287. My email is jstockton at littler.com and I can be reached at 415-216-1203. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks again. Thank you. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.